Welcome to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. This is a platform for the extraordinary women leading the regenerative agricultural movement and the transformation of our societies around the world. They are on the ground, creating critical shifts in seemingly intractable and highly unsustainable systems, and they have been doing so for a long time. I'm Aurora Flynn, creator of the show. In this series, we look to explore beyond the soil, to the underlying theme of transformation itself across size, scale, multiple dimensions, from that very internal landscape of human consciousness to the outer manifestation in the world around us, be it in the form of agricultural management practices, tools, and techniques, to culture, economics, policy, as well as the built environment. This series is a joint venture with Soil for Climate and my own organization, the Outer Borders Agency, where we work to help transform the human social infrastructure and the built environment to create truly resilient and regenerative societies. These recordings originally aired as interactive live stream interviews on social media. They were held during the initial months of the U.S. COVID lockdown, and due to limited facilities, we sometimes had to get creative with our locations and dealt with the occasional technical issue. Please enjoy these incredible women. You're listening to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. My guest today is Renata Brillinger. She's the co-founder and executive director of the California Climate and Agricultural Network, CalCAN. She has more than two decades of experience in sustainable agriculture policy and programs and 30 years experience in nonprofit administration. She serves on the steering committee of the Center of Sustainability at Cal Poly University in San Luis Obispo and on the advisory board of the UC Davis Agricultural Sustainability Institute. Renata, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to have you and your perspectives on, on so many aspects that we've been wanting to get to on this show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, I would love it if we could just give everybody context right away and open up a little bit more about what CalCAN does and how it functions, how it began, and how it works within the network and who, who's a participant within that. Okay. Um, well, CalCAN's been around uh, 12, well, it'll be 12 years old in a little bit. Um, and we started, we're a coalition of organizations that are all based in California and that work on, on food and, and agriculture issues in various capacities. Uh, many of the members work with and serve farmers, um, farmers and ranchers. Um, some of them have an emphasis on organic, some on ecological agriculture, some on family scale farming. It's a, it's a mixture. Um, and the groups um, were working together, you know, in other, other ways for years. Many of them are decades old organizations, but they, they came together um, really recognizing that there was a leadership vacuum when it came to um, bringing forward the powerful solutions that climate that agriculture has for climate change, which I'm sure we're going to talk a fair bit about going forward. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that can be done on farms and ranches to sequester carbon and um, reduce emissions. And there's things that have a lot of other co-benefits as well, you know, that produce um, health, other environmental benefits and, and health benefits and address equity issues and so on. So so those groups really recognized that there was um, there needed to be a voice coming from agriculture in the climate policy space in California. Um, back then, we were just launching a whole bunch of programs that were going to um, generate funding for, to incentivize um, various strategies for reducing mm -hmm. emissions. Um, so we saw there was some money that was going to be available, and that was really a big part of our impetus. It was to make sure that some of that money would go into the hands of the farmers and ranchers that we work with and support, and that we think are some of the best leaders. When was that? That what money is that? No, when when was that? Oh, that so that well, we formed in two thousand nine, um, okay. which was three years after California passed a cap and uh, um, passed a, a very comprehensive bill, including a cap and trade program, right. to tackle climate change. In two thousand six, under Arnold Schwarzenegger, they, <laughs> you know, amazingly now to think about a Republican governor passed a climate the, the first in the country climate right. bill. Um, 
so we sort of saw there was going to be both mandates, goals, and money, you know, coming. And so we wanted to make sure that, that our perspectives were represented in that space. Um, so the coalition formed and um, we, hired, we hired a couple of people on and a lobbyist and, you know, got to work. And we can talk more about what we've accomplished and, what, and where the roadblocks are. But the long and short is that there's now, you know, a, quite a few programs that are funding farmers and ranchers um, to do various practices that have climate benefits. Um, and there's still a lot more work to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think I first connected with you all in 2015. So there was okay. some, some nice progress that was really being made. And it was, I was just helping out with shuttle runs of ranchers to SAC to you know, to speak about why the soil initiative was so important. It would be really great, I think. Part of what um, it would, what I'd like to go into is, is sort of illuminating that process a bit more when it comes to the various areas within multiple systems within the coalition itself, what you activate in order for that push to even happen, for these votes to go in for initiation, initiatives to come forward. I think that would be really yeah. helpful. Okay, yeah, I'm glad you reminded me of that time because that was really the that was sort of the beginning of the of the um launch of some of these programs and i think there's a bunch of things that that led to their creation um and i i tend to think that among the most important is the voices of farmers and ranchers directly speaking to their elected representatives um that's still a central tenant of how we organize or how we affect change is is to bring in the experts, you know, to the, to speak directly. Um, you know, we do a lot of intermediary intermediating ourselves as as advocates, but the most powerful exchanges happen when the farmer is, is sitting across the desk from the person that they elect, um, and the, you know that it has the most authenticity. It's it's it, they can speak with authority about the benefits and how it works in their system. And I think without having farmers and ranchers really involved in even the, you know, in the feedback loop about what's needed in the policy space, if we don't have that, we're not going to really probably end up with solutions that really work or get picked up, you know? Yeah. So that's something I think as we go forward, part of what I really wanted for today is to look at some strategy and sense making for people about where participation can can come in outside the voter booth outside the consumer dollar right and that there's there's an inefficacy there there's also a sense of futility um, and a sense of powerlessness and my experience I think it was eight years ago walking into the farmers guild was I knew soil was important I knew I was getting involved with helping regenerate landscapes with megafauna right hooved animals um, and I knew it was imperative to heal my body with food why wasn't it you know with within you know institutions already why wasn't it easily accessible why wasn't it financially viable um and i just listened for a really long time i just went to the meetings that's where i started hearing everybody speak and then i started organizing the grazer guild meetings and listening to what our ranchers needed and part of it was that day of them being very uncomfortable to go speak of them not wanting to make that effort who's going to watch the cattle who's going to watch the you know the flock of sheep and it was we're going to get the babysitters for you. You're going to approve. I've got sandwich and cookies. Get in the car. We're going. And you know, and you know, step into that. What what is uncomfortable for them a lot of the time to speak to their representatives about why this matters, and especially from the heart. There's nothing like being present with a rancher in the field with what their mission and purpose is in the world, and how strongly they feel about the resources and what they need in order to do this at regenerative capacity, and how futile it can feel and limited it can feel, how exhausting it could be. And then to really authentically present that um, was one of the things I really respected immediately about the coalition, about that sense of we're gonna get them up there, we're gonna create the whole structure for them to be heard um, and, and then get them out doing their work, which I don't think they get nearly enough support in. So I love that about CalCan and what you do. Yeah, and, and I think uh, you're, you're making me think about some things we've done since then more and more, which is bring the legislators to the farm. Ah, um, I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's one thing to bring, the, you know, folks into the Capitol, but that's really an intimidating venue. Um, it's, it's designed that way. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's intimidating for even 
you know, people who have done it before or people who, you know, speak English or people who have, you know, some educational background or people who are white, you know, it's even for folks like that, it's intimidating or older folks, you know, let alone if you're, if you're not as, you know, if you've, if you've got any of those um, challenges in terms of being part of the dominant culture. So, um, and because it's even though the legislature in California is 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 no is kind of on the edge of no longer being majority white, it's still a white culture. It's still a you know still a, an institution. Um, but bringing legislators to the farm, then they're on the you know the turf of the of the of the expert uh, of the topic at hand. You know, yeah. which is how to how to make agriculture maximally um, economically efficient environmentally you know healthy and and equitable and so that's where the really good conversations happen you know where the listening gets deeper because you you know you're actually also having a sensory experience not just an intellectual one yes um, so yeah i've seen really 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 great things happen out on farms and ranches because i hear you have a lot of consciousness i can see it on the website around you know racial equity and certainly even our state is you know supposed to have more awareness with the recent equity report. Farmer Equity Act? Yeah, the Farmer Equity Act. So this was a report we've been waiting for to talk about. Uh, both supposed to make recommendations and also kind of highlight uh, the discrimination and how to re make reparations. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so that Farmer Equity Act passed in 2017 um, and was led by a, a a group called the California Farmer Justice Collaborative, which I would direct people to. Yes. Um, many, many, most of whom are actual farmers um, of color. Um, and so they, spo they sponsored that bill. They were the lead advocates on it. Um, and one of the things that the bill did was require CDFA, Department of Food and Ag, um, to do this report. So um, they first had to hire, we also required them to hire what they call an equity officer. So that person was hired in the first year after the bill passed and then the report was produced, you know, in the, in the next year. Um, so it, it is definitely worth looking at. People can just look, find it by looking for farmer equity uh, report, CDFA farmer equity report. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to really refer mainly uh, to, the, so, so what the report includes is a few main topics. They touch on land tenure as one of the big barriers for farmers of color, um, getting access to land. You know, so much land has been stolen and, and people of color have never recovered um, from, from that. And um, farming, you know, the percentage of farmers who are, uh, you know, demographically, the breakdown of, of, of California farm farmers is skewed white um, and that's because of those the, the, you know hundreds of years of um of dis discrimination and systemic discrimination so land tenure is a big big problem language and you know accessing um information and resources is a big problem um there's unfamiliarity among many farmers of color according to the report um, with with what's available with state programs and services and technical assistance mm -hmm. and there's minimal representation on various boards and commissions both within cdfa but also in the trade industries and commodity groups at large yeah i found that a little ironic that the the commission itself is 84 percent white like yeah. I, I know part of the recommendation has been this is to remedy structural issues right representation um and the fact that the equity report was issued without that representation was a little i mean that's the catch that's the problem right that's the irony of the paradox we're in is how to remedy that without ousting, but maybe appropriately so, because it seemed to me like there was some lack of thoughtfulness and recommendations on part of, on, in my opinion, and I would love to hear yours on part of the report, um, that maybe would not have been the case had the commission not been 84% Caucasian. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I really wanna mainly just amplify the message of the California Farmer Justice uh, Collaborative. They did publish a formal response to the report and it was quite critical. Um, there, there were certain th certainly things they appreciated about it, yeah. um, but they, they called out several things, some of which you just touched on, which is that there wasn't an acknowledgement of the, of the systemic nature of the discrimination or, or racism, uh, let alone ownership of it. Um, that there was no even definition of what racial equity is. Um, and so 
that there was an, a you know number of critiques from from that collaborative and and then some calls you know on CDFA to do better, including um, more engagement with stakeholders that represent farmers of color. They okay. they didn't acknowledge any of the organizations or even the collaborative itself um, in the report as 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 stakeholders. Um, so there needs to be much more engagement. Um, they didn't solicit, or the, the, the collaborative would suggest that they solicit more input um, with organizations that have a demonstrated track record, you know, on racial equity. Um, and lastly, the main other main recommendation they made was that there, there needs to be more diversity uh, within the agency, just on their staff. Yeah, yeah, it's one of, it's one of those. I, and you see it a lot. I work in inclusivity work and training and orientation as we work with communities and and just creating the awareness over and over is a part of is a huge part of it, not the blame behind it, but knowing that those things will be missed if you're not actually aware enough to and trained to look that way. And we're coming out of a culture that has not required it of us. So it's not surprising in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm I don't take it as ill humor, just kind of like, okay. But that's a really, I mean, I'm really glad that there's a, there seems to be a lot of clarity about steps forward, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly if that feedback is taken seriously, then it, it will yield more um, deep reflection, at least. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, going back to, uh, yeah, definitely, let's go back to sort of strategy and sense making here and, and Carl's illustrious what seemed like an elementary question to me during the week, but, but proved to be a, a really juicy one as I sat with it. Um, because I want, again, to, for our audience to get a sense of what they can do outside of the voter booth, outside of you know, the consumer dollar and, and that whole paradigm of, of how I participate. Um, and Carl asked me you know, why Whole Foods, and he's a soil advocate, right? Soil for climate. Um, but he asked me why are Whole Foods not served at, uh, from local farms and ranches? at schools, at public institutions, at the, through the prison system. Like, why, is that ha why hasn't that happened already? And I know that's a very complex answer, but I think we're gonna illuminate a lot of things that would be really helpful. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to, um, to a, a colleague yesterday about this, and he reminded me of, the, um, of a perspective, I guess, that might be relevant here. Um, which is that I think we um, I think we sometimes um, think that there's something broken about um, the the food system, um, right. but there's a, a a really amazing thinker named Raj Patel um, that many people may have heard of. Who I may not get the quote exactly right, but basically he says it's it's not broken. It's 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 functioning just as exactly as it was designed to. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it was good to be reminded of that of that perspective. Um, so it's a design problem, I think, fundamentally. You know, um, and and it's a design pro problem that's really complex and now very entrenched. And so. Um, you know, undesigning it or redesigning it is is going to be and has proven to be very challenging. There there are groups and individuals who've been working on this for decades. You know, undesigning it. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of vested interest in the design as it currently is, and I think you know that that takes all kinds of forms. Not all malicious. Some um, very you know driven by greed and by a lust for power and control uh, and a fear of um, a different future but but some just because it's you know I, I mean it's hard to to change a monolithic system like that and i think even the well-intentioned among us have a hard time making really good choices because this the system doesn't support them you know it, it costs more to buy good food so, well, not, so some of us don't have even the privilege of making different choices Hugely so, and that's that's. I mean, that's the constant. It's the chronic paradigm that I advocate in is the consumer who can't afford it and the the producer who can't afford it. So, um, you know, I feel like uh, even with what I want to go into today with you know Biden's Unity Task Force recommendations or look at the Senate, um, the House Select Committee's climate crisis report, 
I feel like we can't even dive into these things without acknowledging what is sort of un unearthing itself here, which is what seems like a fundamental lack of democracy, a democratic process that's truly representing the values of people. When you have big business, when you have elite, when you have incentive, when you have subsidies, um, this to me is a locked down entrenched system that really doesn't have people at heart and the interest of their well-being. Um, and so it leads me to really, especially with other things that are escalating right now, as we're sitting here thinking about the days, weeks, and months to come, outside of us, at, you know, the Democrats, uh, Democratic Party claiming the House and the Senate and the admin, you know, the presidential office, we we need to start strategizing outside of that possibility and even within that possibility for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that I don't know that we actually have a representative democracy. And if that's the case, I don't know that we can actually shift these monolithic systems to accomplish what you're talking about in the time we need to do it, especially with recent climate reports. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a lot to uh, it's a lot to tackle be, because so much of it does uh, in in terms of democracy reforming democracy so much so much of it is um you know dependent on campaign contributions and you know supreme court <laughs> rulings that um make corporations people with a you know a voice that akin to the those of yours or mine but with a lot more amplification because of the money they're allowed to spend and you know it's it's a really it's a big field of of uh work is to uh, achieve the vision of democracy. Um, I, I got, I got interested and stayed interested in, in agriculture work because it seemed to me like it was as good a venue as any or good a subject matter as any to, to tackle or to, to try to seek, um, democratic expression. And the reason I think that still think that is that it's very personal. Food is very personal. Um, and farmers are very, um, uh, well, inspiring, you know, to work with the, the, you know, I just really enjoy, um, the way farmer, farmers approach their, you know, the, the, the challenges of growing good food. Um, and it, it just seems to me that with that many good humans, um, that, you know, to, that, that building power and influence collectively to, to sort of see the outcomes I think many people actually want is, is an expression of, you know, acting democratically. Yes. <laughs> so it just, it seemed like it was a good combination of both tackling a really deep systemic problem and doing it with people who, you know, who um, care a lot about what they're putting in their mouth and what they're growing in their backyard, you know, or their neighbor, their field next to their house or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, it's not really a, I don't know how to answer your question in a meaningful way about how, you know, the representative democracy issue, but um, I, I just, you know, we just have to sort of dig in somewhere. Um, yeah. Sometimes when I think about leaving sustainable agriculture, I do think about campaign finance reform as maybe the other, you know, sort of way to approach root cause problems in, in democracy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's it's just invaluable to have. I, I've ha I have had many policy debates, legislative debates. How do we, you know, how do we get behind an increase? And and to me, I keep wanting to go meta and get it back away, keep backing away because every problem that we're focused on, every piece of policy we pull apart, climate action plans we pull apart. If we don't back up and question the reality within the whole system we're trying to operate in, um, then the strategy doesn't happen. Because for me, strategy is about building that power behind the resources. It's about the moves we make and recognizing the counter moves that may come. And if we're recognizing that counter moves are coming from agencies that are so much bigger than representing the people when it comes to resources and power that's been accumulated then maybe that's the conversation we need to start having, you know, and I, I don't, again, I, I'm, 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 we don't need to come to conclusions in the dialogue. We don't need to come to levity even, you know, it's, it's a reality that I, we're looking at as we walk into, uh, you know, even with 
people who are who are you know we get democratics and you know in the house it has me questioning the whole uh, possibility behind the system um and especially what can happen in light of covid um and certainly in light of you know some of these more recent you know reports about the temperature increases where we're actually at um as well as uh the recommendations being made um because i don't know that they're remotely going to be adequate to to keep us below 1.5 and i actually don't believe there these numbers are coming from what would include um, a scope three analysis which is transboundary emissions it's looking at upstream and downstream impacts um, and I, I even have a slide i wanted to show to people because there's this constant assumption when people build out like the House Select Committee's climate crisis report. Um, the EPA currently asks that we calculate direct emissions, so produced on site, indirect, so at the power plant when you, you know, when you flip on the switch here. Um, but what they don't require is a section of the emissions footprint that can have as much as two thirds of the emissions that are created in the world. Now, it's not always possible to take responsibility for them, but like cancer in the body, we can't do anything about it unless we know it's there. Um, and it's a really easy way to clean up some of the emissions. This is the international gold standard. This is a life cycle assessment with a material flow analysis, right? So you're getting a whole upward and downward impact. What I'm concerned is happening right now is the United States um, Democratic Party is laying down action plans based on a scope one and two, which is I think what their methodology is telling me. Um, and I can see that some of their recommendations for industry is trying to look at circular economies, which tells me they're looking a bit at scope three. But what this fundamentally brings into question for me is the game we constantly play in, which is the dominant cultural paradigm, which is I'm gonna shift responsibility for my footprint to another part of the world, right? Because if we say, well, we did our work and we did, we, we're carbon neutral by, we're carbon zero by 2040 or 20, you know, 30, depending on what plan we're reading, um, then it's entirely possible. We've just not taken responsibility for a huge amount of the footprint and asked other countries around the world that are developing nations, that are nations, you know, largely of people of color, equatorial regions that are getting the more of the impacts that have fewer resources and capabilities to take to be responsible for that mm -hmm. um, and it's something I don't see in the dominant discourse about any of these um, rec any of these uh, reports coming out um, yet and I'm really concerned that we're you know that, that a democratic leadership will communicate to the American people we're doing enough and I don't think that's going to be the case on many, many, many fronts. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about you, and there may be other reasons for you as well. But well, I think you're you're speaking to the, the sort of level of of literacy of, um, and details that have yet to be revealed. Um, say on you know Biden's plan. Um, I haven't read. I think it's 110 pages long. I haven't read the whole thing. Um, I just went through his climate section plan. <laughs> I was not going to look at. I looked at some of the the healthcare stuff, but yeah, I just went through the climate change action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of detail that's not in there. You know, so I don't. I didn't see any mention of of that that level of like um, that would allow us to scrutinize it at that level you were just talking about. I no, think another. Yeah, just to ahead. be clear, the, the House Select Committee did provide their methodology, and then the EPA just recommends a scope one and two. I'm going to go ahead and throw up a slide while you talk, so people are okay. asking where are these scopes, and it'll just help them see it. Yeah, great. Well, me um, too, because I'm not entirely familiar with it either. Yeah, it's a. I'm kind of. I'm always surprised that uh, it's not more readily in people's view. It was when I started reviewing. Um, climate action plans at higher education institutions that I realized most of them were not being responsible for their complete footprints. And I just happened to have a teacher who worked at the IPCC on the fifth assessment. And so he was just like, whoa. Yeah. Um, so now that's what he does in climate action plans. Let's go three, I'm on it, Carl. <laughs> um, please, by all means, Renata, I'm gonna take a second here to try to. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if this is an example of, uh, of scope three, um, something I think a fair bit about in agriculture, which is that the way the um, inventory is done here in California is the, the agricultural footprint is measured just by what emissions are um, 
modeled to be derived from on-farm um, practices. It yes. doesn't include up or downstream from the farm, right? Yeah. So, That's so that. for example, if a healthy soils practice displaces the use of nitrogen fertilizer, that is not accounted to the farmer. It's it's accounted to the at the in industrial scale. It's accounted to the the lowering of the energy footprint of the fertilizer facility plant. Well, so the, to the energy it takes to create nitrogen fertilizer, the carb, the emissions footprint for that is actually in the industrial sector. It's not right. in, like 90% of it, which was what was deeply concerning for me about the carb, the footprint behind agriculture in general that the UN advocates for. Because when you like, let's say Germany's agricultural footprint, when you don't account for that emissions coming from the nitrogen creation, boosted their agricultural footprint from 6% to 12.6 or something, it doubled it, but we put it in the industrial sector. And so it's not, I think people are, are starting to understand this now that these, these footprints, they've been incomplete, right? Mm -hmm. that, that they get shuffled to different arenas and it's because they aren't siloed. They're breathing into each other. So you can see that. Um, and it's exactly what you're talking about, Renata. You can see um, scope one here, right? This direct emissions. This is from the EPA's website even. Um, you've got indirect scope two um, coming from purchased electricity and steam, right? It's offsite. And then you've got this whole line of production and creation of, 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 of traveling that's not on site, right? So it's not just combustion on site we have to take accountability for, but traveling combustion, um, pump to wheels and wheels, to, you know, like there's whole parts of the life cycle we have to look at. And then what happens to the material and when you dispose of it, and that's a part of the process as well, and it's indirect. So it's upstream and it's downstream. And like any municipality or any individual being, what we do impacts those around us and those emissions quite quickly breathe into other communities um, and other countries. And we go, well, we hit carbon neutrality. Well, you did, but you didn't take responsibility for a huge part of what you're doing because it interacts with those other communities. And unless they're also doing scope threes, it never quite gets identified and it gets shuffled around and nobody is accountable for it. Um, so kind of one of the, I just, I'm so baffled sometimes why like this is starting to be the international gold standard. But um, that's why, you know, when I look at climate action plans, looking at, you know, funding mechanisms, accountable parties in place, and then scope three, and then I know they really mean it. They're, they're mm -hmm. here to get a job done. So that's a scope three, everyone. I'll stop sharing this and go back to you and I. So is it is it true that it doesn't get accounted for, or is it just that it's in a different bucket? Um, both. Both. It can, yeah, it can be in a different bucket. It's a really good question. It can be in a different bucket, or it can just get shuffled to somebody else's, right? Because my my product is, you know, I'm not taking responsibility for the carbon offset that you're producing it, and then I have it, but I don't take responsibility for, for that. And then what happens to it later is suddenly not my problem, but the person over there. Um, and so if the person over there takes accountability for it, great, but they may not. So mm -hmm. that's why it's really important to have everybody kind of doing the same scope one, two, and three, and then we can negotiate what we can't, you can't, it's very hard to be responsible for all of those emissions, but if you start negotiating, then there's easy gains and you're also transparent. There's just something about an honor and integrity thing for me too, at this point where I'm like, walk it. It is a challenge. Absolutely. And so that's why when I, I do look at these recommendations, I mean, to be fair, the House Select Committee, uh, the Climate Crisis Report had a nod to uh, emotional and physical well-being impacts from climate change and had a nod to needing to improve the democratic process. Um, so and seeing some some more integrity there and accountability of this is not just, you know, carbon neutrality by 2030, we're going to be fine. Um, you know, <laughs> let's I just don't think we are possibly taking into possibly realizing how unstable this is. This could be really about to be um, in in those reports. One of the concerns that comes up for me as you talk about this is um, the infatuation with um, get teching our way out of this problem, um, this climate crisis. You know, using technology as the answer to everything. 
It's okay. an easy trap to fall into, and it's actually the problem that it's what created the problem in the first place. <laughs> it was industrialization, right? Yes. So it seems to me like we should be very wary of um, high tech solutions to the yep. climate crisis. Uh, it's, and that comes into play in agriculture in a bunch of different ways. Um, and I think, um, you know, so I think a, a scope three approach or a life cycle approach to, to you know, solution to a life cycle analysis of solutions could yield findings that um, show that maybe some of those high tech ideas are not going to pencil out even when it comes to achieving reductions if that's truly what we're trying to do yes and i don't i don't necessarily always think that's actually what we're trying to do um <laughs> i think it's what you and i are trying to do <laughs> this is why i bring up definitions i'm like climate smart ag what are we talking about because that's i mean that's what you end up seeing is this monetization or sort of a greenwashing of something that looks like it's just for you i'm gonna fix your problem and i'm going it's actually inherently from a different from a different paradigm you're talking about renata people are asking questions that you're kind of walking into right now really beautifully <laughs> um what are your ideas for redesign of these systems um another question is as these systems are breaking down what might be available to us as, as citizens to recreate these systems this is this is uh, this is a group this community that we're reaching today and we'll continue to watch this video are are beyond the voting booth and beyond voting with their dollar, they, they are ready to start mobilizing and, and redesigning. They would, mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I do tend to think that policy is a powerful tool, maybe not the only thing we need to be focused on, but um, when you look at the things that perpetuate the, the des current design, they're, they're really propped up by a lot of policy. You mentioned subsidies earlier, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, crop subsidies for those big commodity crops that mainly feed animals um, uh, or go into like processed foods um, are, you know, that's a lot of money um, that flows, you know, from the taxpayer to um, those big growers every year. And then another big chunk of money that flows to them is crop insurance. When, when their design fails, they get, you know, they get supported with um, insurance payments. And that's becoming an increasingly, you know, challenging negative feedback loop because the more, um, and I'm making some generalizations here, um, but you know, if if a, let's take a farm, if a farm relies on chemical inputs and and doesn't um, and doesn't pay attention to true soil health, over time that farm will become more brittle and more susceptible to climate impacts, and so the subsidy program supports the continuation of that set of practices and then you know bails out the farmer when a big flood happens that you know that washes away all the topsoil because they yeah. don't have a spongy healthy soil for the water to you know penetrate i mean floods still will devastate the best of farms i'm not suggesting that but i don't think we should be that, i don't think that cycle really makes sense that cycle of pain <laughs> Um, what makes more sense to me is to spend billions of dollars um, giving, you know, farmers support for transitioning away from that chemical treadmill um, and towards more biodiverse, more, you know, that maybe operations that integrate animals, um, operations that have um, various crops so that they're not as susceptible to a single year's failure. Um, certainly soil health practices, you know, certainly water conservation practices, as you know, the whole bunch of things that we know will yield a, a tremendous number of benefits. Now, you know, so that's, that's what one way that policy could theoretically um, <clears throat> make a big, big change in the design. Of course, it, you know, it, it's laughable to think that that's possible right now, because we don't have power. And that's the other piece, you know, yeah. so the policy ideas are there. The power isn't you know, the influence, the, 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 what I think, you know, we don't have, and this is maybe where yeah. um, folks can put their shoulder to the wheel here. Um, I mean, you can certainly support organizations that work on policy, um, mm -hmm. but you can also, you know, think about building coalition um, to support that policy change that's needed. And um, I mean, I'm a firm believer in coalitions as hard as they are um, and as, and as not as diverse as they need to be. Um, mm -hmm. They're still really much more powerful, I think, than than single issue, you know, advocacy. And 
I think we're really at a time now, and I think that both the pandemic and the social unrest that's going on right now is revealing that more than ever, we better figure this coalition thing out because, you know, intersectoral organizing, because if we don't, we are going to keep running into these systems failures and we're going to keep running into the limits of our political influence. It's really great, Renata. Um, it's really great. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a propensity to do the nine to five and keep our lives the way it's been. And co mm -hmm. building coalitions is an incredible challenge and an incredible feat, especially if it's outside of what your, you know, how you earn your livelihood is, is gained um, and raising your children, et cetera, and all of those things. I think that's why I kind of presented a bit, like when I walked into this community before I went to get my master's and got into everything else I do now, it was a really simple moment of going, I'm an advocate, I wanna support this. I know this is fundamental, I had no idea what to do. And it was just walking in and listening at the Farmers Guild before it became the California Alliance for Family Farms now and um, really hearing where some of these bottlenecks were. But that was the birthplace of these co coalitions, so to speak. I mean, that was where the commitments were coming from people to participate, but not on a single issue. And that was when I was also slightly overwhelmed with how many areas from markets to, you know, who we needed to go talk to, um, to even get some of these leverage points to move because everybody's fixed in a system that's not allowing for that generosity, so to speak. Um, which I think is the part that outrages me the most sometimes is that we've created systems that, that force people to operate in a scarcity mode and yeah. be out of integrity with their value system, with their honorability, with their connectivity with people. They get into a really, um, it creates identities. I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like the best of us are not allowed to breathe in the systems easily. Um, and it creates uh, a win-lose situation quite often, which I think is where people shut down in their civic participation um, and their advocacy. I'm wondering if it's changing now, but I, I think it has to change now. And I think it's good. We're gonna have to find an amazing source of inspiration to, um, to rally all of us to do this. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you where I get, I'd love to hear your answer to where you get your inspiration. I think that might be as much as anything, a powerful question for everybody, you know. Um, I can tell you what I, what I, where, where I am at with that right now. And, and I, because I think, um, I think that, you know, I th it, it, there's something very pleasurable about, um, about cynicism and um, and despair, they're, they're, they're in a weird way, it's very attractive to go into that place of just like ragging on the bad politicians or talking about the problem. You know, the yeah. endless problem analysis. I, I I can very easily get into that. <laughs> into that <laughs> but it doesn't actually nourish me or or keep, get me up in the day or keep me working past five o'clock or whatever. You know, um, what really is I think. I, I'm just trying to train myself more and more to focus on is where is the solution? Where is the inspiration? Where's the love and the connection and leadership and all that? Like, where's the, the light? <laughs> um, and right now, especially things feel so heavy and so uncertain and so um, change, change, you know, changing so fast. Um, so I, when I look around for inspiration, it's, I mean, first on top of the list is like people under 25. <laughs> <laughs> yes, completely. <laughs> Absolutely, me too. I'm Almost teaching undergrad. Anybody under twenty-five, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and better even under twenty. Like, there's some dynamo um, so teenage athletes, right? Yeah. So, um, I kind of want to be following them. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I do really t continue to be inspired by farmers and ranchers, uh, especially the ones we get to work with. You know, even the ones who you might consider more conventional, I mean, they're incredibly creative, resilient people. Um, and, um, you know, I, I get to talk with some folks around the country who are working on, with farmers um, on healthy soils policies. And um, in certain parts of the country, especially in the center of the country, there's a lot of change happening that's quite inspiring. I mean, people are now talking about climate change at a much more readily than, than even two years ago. The floods yeah. in Iowa, last year really <laughs> changed the conversation. Oh, yeah. Or, uh, yeah. So, so there's, I think there's a lot of inspiration there, you know, in the, in the heartland. Um, 
there's so many crises those folks are facing and they're so resilient and they're so so passionate about holding on to their farms and i think there's a you know a turning happening um that is pretty quick as these things go so i'm really inspired about that and then i am um very humbled by the um you know black light the, the movement for black lives <clears throat> and the sort of uh how quickly i and a lot of other people around me are are, are moving through the, the uh a continuum from you know not being racist which is where most of the people i know are <clears throat> we're, we're not racist i don't think most of us are but it's a big journey to make to be anti-racist and and that's happening pretty quickly and um so people who are speaking about that are also really inspiring to me right now because it's um it's getting it's get it's opening the possibility that there will be this truly deep intersectoral organizing um that'll get us uh you know to a place where the leadership style and the leadership and the wisdom and the perspectives are much more representative of that whole um wholeness that i think we want to see in how we raise our food yeah yeah oh, that's, that's beautiful i think that's one of the things i truly i recalled about and why i wanted to connect with you again i mean i remember years ago that was something it, to focus towards the light and the inspiration was something you said to a permaculture student at a class mm -hmm. i was sitting with that i was visiting off the jenner headlands and i was down there right. for the evening donaga Markegard was uh, mark guard was there and um this student was really upset about the state of the world and climate change and how to add how to make this move and how to have it happen fast enough and you know you just told him that that wasn't his job then that his job was mm -hmm. to find what gave him inspiration and passion and to and to make movement there to move it forward if this was freaking him out there was a process for him to to come to terms with to move through potentially and if that wasn't giving his inspiration and lift and joy wasn't found in it not to worry about it we got it you know that there are other people that are going to show up and go this is for me like you and i this is this is a, a source of generation for me it doesn't deteriorate who i am to hold space you know to to bring the ideas through and how are we going to rally i felt from my whole lifetime to these moments i go i was born and created and evolved to do this i've got this this is what i'm here to do and it can look like a lot of different things within it um and I trust that that gentleman hopefully went and if he's a painter, he's painting right now. You know what I mean? Like that's what I really want for the world is for the orientation maybe to shift with our participation with the one, two, three heave ho that we're gonna really need in mobilization to shift these systems. Um, but that there is a, a truly generative, and part of that is that intersectionality you're talking about really beautifully, that, that open heartedness that comes from recognizing and integrating what has been a, a culture built out of holocausts, you know, um, that that's rippling through horrors and terrors and traumas into a culture that suppresses emotionality, emotional responsibility, does not allow for the transformation and the germination of wisdom quite readily. It sequesters people into identities and boxes. It's based on profitability. It's based on segmentation and separation, lack of seeing the whole, and a lack of expression of the self, who we are, right? In that authentic presence, but authenticity for me is, is sort of the alchemizing process of, of, of what you've been through to become who you are. And if we don't support that process with each other, which is what Black Lives Matter is for me, which is what has been from the indigenous communities I come from and the genocidal roots I was born from, we have to, Una, come here. I have a four-legged child and she's fussing. Um, <laughs> authentic. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say she showed up right at the right time. Totally, she's like, ma. Um, <laughs> um, and she, she's, she was, this is what Una does. We go and work with communities, dealing with trauma, dealing with how to build that resilience and that connectivity. But um, that alchemizing process of, of confronting truth, and being and and uh allowing the healing to occur um my brother's black um you know my family comes from you know our immigrants and they come from you know ashkenazi from our own holocausts and all i do is work with indigenous communities that are finishing breathing through that into a place of uh of wellness and harmony and then shifting systems while they go 
and they're conscious of it, the ones I've worked with, that that's part of their journey. They have to reclaim their wholeness and their healing. Um, and uh, I don't think that is separate from what sort of dominant culture needs to do as well. White identified community. This is not to say that there isn't that own, there's hugely so. I work with, you know, white men who haven't cried since they were boys and they aren't in touch with their heart, with their passion, why they're here, who they are. They, you know, that was one of the first beautiful things Renata I connected with ranchers about was it wasn't, we were looking at the soil and talking about carbon and, you know, water holding capacity. And then it was, how's your family? How's it, how's it going with, with your wife and the three jobs? And, you know, there was so much latent heartbreak for the amount of pride and responsibility and feeling like a failure, feeling like I shouldn't, they were not able to be superheroes in a system that's crushing them. Um, so, you know, to me, it's really about a, a, a social fabric that is, is in need of a lot of renewal and, and cleansing and authenticity to create that resiliency. And that's where I get my lift from watching people remember who they are and drop into their beings. And that mm. can be in any moment. So that's the supermarket for me or, or here right now, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> I will find that in the world and create it. Cause that's, yeah, that's how I look at what we do in our purpose that we create it. So mm -hmm. yeah. That's my jam. Vision. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was a great question. Um, yes, I know about, uh, let's see. So there's a couple questions here. I'm going to double check. Seth, you're test. Okay. You're sending two different. Okay. Um, Mary Chambers. So a woman named Mary Chambers is asking, so would this mean that the potential impact of carbon sequestering agriculture is often underestimated because of the display displacement of nitrogen fertilizer? Um, the displacement of it is not accounted for. So would this mean that the potential impact of carbon sequestering agriculture is often underestimated? I don't, I don't know, do you want to tackle that? Um, the way I would think about that is, well, first of all, we have to trust that the models, you know, are based in something sound. And that's a, a bit of a leap of faith for those of us who aren't modelers, which is almost everybody. Let's assume <laughs> the models are sound. Okay. Let's assume that we've got good sound science underpinning the models yeah. that allow us to measure carbon in the soil and allow us to measure how much uh, CO2 emissions come from producing nitrogen fertilizer, which is a lot, as you said, Aurora, um, much more than the carbon sequestration potential, or, you know, it's on par with the carbon sequestration potential <laughs> in the soil um, because nitrogen is a, um, is a short-lived climate pollutant. It's very potent. So... I'm sorry, it's not a short-lived climate pollutant, but it's very potent. It, it traps carbon uh, uh, dioxide at, at a much higher level than carbon dioxide. So um, what I got distracted by, I distracted myself, but the, the, the long and short is that it's not necessarily that we're not measuring the, nit the savings from displacing nitrogen use. It's that the, the bucket, the accounting column that it goes into is a different one than the farmer gets benefit from or, 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 or um, acknowledgement of. So if a farmer improves soil health and it ends up reducing their on-farm emissions in their little envelope, either by reducing the actual emissions or by pulling more carbon and putting it in the soil, they get credited, you know, whether it's through the carbon market or through a grant program, which is what I prefer to look at, they mm. get that, they get acknowledged for that, for that benefit to society but they don't get the benefit of the um, reduction in nitrogen fertilizer use. Even if it's happening, it's, ha it's getting credited to the nitrogen fertilizer factory <laughs> out of state usually, in, in the case of California. Um, that's not necessarily, a, I mean, we're still getting the global benefit, you know, um, it's just that farmers don't get, get paid for it, you know, they, and, it, and it doesn't get acknowledged. Yeah, as well, many reasons to do these practices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the acknowledgement is huge. Um, and Seth is sending me a question, and I'm still a little unclear. Seth, is this the cotton one? She says, "Why?" Oh, she says, "Why?" Sarah. Uh, oh, I'm so oh, Sabra. I'm sorry, I missed that question. Cotton is the worst. Why aren't we growing linen? Why are our hats from Australia wool manufactured in China and sent here? Yeah, why aren't we growing linen? Mm -hmm. Design problem again. 
Okay. <laughs> you know, why aren't we growing hemp? Um, <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't, I don't know the difference between the carbon footprints of linen versus hemp versus cotton, um, but uh, why we grow cotton? I mean, that's what the American, uh, that's what the country was built on with slave labor. <laughs> we grow cotton because we, because we built a lot of profit. Um, we concentrated a lot of profit in the hands of a very few people who have, um, you know, ever since have benefited from, from that crop. Um, California doesn't grow much cotton anymore. It's not, it's, it can't be grown here hardly at all. It's, it's too thirsty. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the natural earth prevails in the end, but, um, you know, but then replacing cotton with something that's less thirsty and that's better for soil and so on, that's, that's a quite, you just have to look at how hard it's been for hemp growers to get approval to grow it. Um, uh, you know, linen doesn't have the baggage that hemp does in terms of its botanical connection cousins, you know, to, to a, to a, to marijuana, but um, it's a tremendous, you know, it's a tremendous shift to make in all the way from like the, you know, the very, very beginning, the seed, you know, access all the way through to the equipment, you know, the growing equipment, the harvesting equipment, the processing equipment, a whole new industry has to be built up, uh, you know, industrial sort of uh, chain has to be built up. And unless there's a profit motive to do so, it's tricky to make that change. Right. There's an organization called Fiber Shed that is trying to do this, right? Yes, Probably worth shouting them out right now. Completely. Everybody look up Fiber Shed. Yeah. They're, they're just really doing, you know, incredible work against incredible odds to do exactly this, you know, seek out more uh, um, climate smart, for lack of a better word, um, uh, fibers, you know, that are grown locally and are, you know, locally adapted, but the, but they're finding that, you know, the cost of doing this because they have to retool that whole stream, you know, mm -hmm. is really, really high. So it's hard, it's hard to change a paradigm. Right. And we're seeing a little bit with what we said, Sanders, at least that just starting to pull subsidies out of fossil fuel, given to fossil fuels. Like, I think this is where people really need to keep pounding and recognizing that that's a direct impact for us. Um, the looks like they're posting some fiber shed stuff. Um, right. Yeah, I was, it'll be interesting to see. I potentially uh, was speaking with and learning about Winona LaDuke's uh, hemp that she's growing, the sustainable hemp out in that area, um, on their res. Um, I don't know, I like that's, when I back up and I think about that, I think it was the 2018 IPCC special report about the difference between the 1.5 and two degrees Celsius increase and that it was much more disastrous to hit two degrees and we really do need to keep it to 1.5. I remember, I think it was McKibben and it was a few other people talking about this mobilization on a size and scale not seen since World War II and that it needed to happen well into the end of the century to convert industry to do this. And there was no talk about it at, my, at the university I was teaching at and learning from. It was just a real silent, like a lack of acknowledgement of the report. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I still, that framing of the amount of mobilization that needs to occur for these industries to become sustainable, to not be getting you know, products from China or to become, what we're talking about is bioregional agriculture, essentially. We're talking about growing things locally and within the bioregion. Um, to reduce the footprint. Um, and I, it's, you know, it's not anti-globalization, but I think that those markets driven by the, you know, the top 20 corporations um, are where you see the lack of resiliency in the food systems. I mean, in that whole transportation process and that whole, you know, distribution process is where we're seeing it flounder right away, which is what we've known about. All of these questions are intersections to this. Well, the pandemic really revealed that, eh? Um, we were seeing um, a shortage of milk in the early days. I don't know if people remember that all four months ago now. There was a shortage of, of milk products and, and beef products, and, um, and yet farmers were dumping milk um, at their farm because yes. we, the system was too rigid, too brittle, and too, um, too specialized, too highly specialized to adapt that quickly to the supply chain, uh, abrupt supply chain change, which happened, which was 
far less institutional purchasing and all resident, you know, moving overnight to residential purchasing. We didn't, we, our schools shut, our, all of our institutions shut down. All the big bulk buyers, that the way that that milk is packaged, processed, packaged, and distributed is all, you know, just to the one kind of sector. And we didn't have any way to get it to people who needed it. It was just a tragedy. Yeah. So this points to the, you know, the, again, the design flaw of having these hyper global, hyper specialized, very rigid, um, very industrial uh, food, food chains. Right. So this kind of bringing this all back as we kind of head into the final minutes here, everyone, and please bring your questions. I'm seeing a lot of comments happening about what we're discussing. We love the participation because um, this is about inspiration and about germinating new seeds here about what's possible. And I really think what we're talking about with is the systemic redesign coming from an influence of coalition forces um, really paying attention to subsidies and the money problem here. Um, yeah. 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 Let's try to end on a, on a, on an up note. Um, <laughs> Renata, what do we do? <laughs> Help us. Well, I, I, this might not sound like an up note at first, but I, I, watched, um, I watched Ken Burns's documentary, the dust bowl during the yeah. pandemic, which, you know, for picker upper isn't maybe the best, but, but I what I took from it, <laughs> oh, it was, I mean, it was actually amazing. They, they interview, he interviewed these, these folks who are in their 80s now who live through the Dust Bowl, and um, he wove through it, you know, the sort of the uh, stories about both what human beings individually are capable of and how, how resilient we actually are to those huge, I mean, huge disruptions. Um, and then what the government response was at the time, you know, and it's really inspiring. It's what bred all is, you know, is the whole New Deal era, right? It bred all right. of the current day, well, um, sort of safe, social safety nets and also the some really strong, important environmental and farming um, conservation yes. um, programs that live to this day. We've still got the vet, you know, we've still got what was then the Soil Conservation Service. It's now called the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Still, still super important to farmers. Mm -hmm. And then we've, um, you know, we the 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 RCDs, what they're called RCDs here, the Resource Conservation Districts. They're different names in different states. Um, but those folks provide technical assistance to farmers, and they've really stepped up into a leadership role here in California to support farmers in applying for these grants. So, so we we know we're close what we need to be doing, but we've we we did it within living memory, you know, with that New Deal era, and we're mm -hmm. at a precipice right now. Where, providing a political change happens in D.C., um, there there's tremendous potential available, and a, and a lot of um, nothing left to lose kind of folks around the country, you know, folks who feel there's nothing left to lose. That ranges from people of color to farmers who are usually not people of color, not always, but usually not. Those folks, those two constituencies have nothing left to lose at this point. And so if the context changes, the political context changes in DC, and I trust that it will, then there's actually a tremendous amount of possibility there um, with new leadership, providing people stay with that kind of intersectoral coalition building work um, yeah. or get with it. Not already with it. And, and I'll say for ourselves, we are not there yet. We're just starting this work. It's really, we're really far behind. And, and um, so it's big, big work. So, uh, but it's, it's got to happen because we're not winning um, equally uh, on our own. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a really, uh, this is a really great note to come to with it when we think about sort of Structurally, we tend to have this populace that goes to the voting booth or buys food. But when you think about, you know, the normalizing what becomes being a regular part of coalitions within your bioregion that are actively working on campaign finance reform or the food systems, but the, the intersectionality of these areas and coordinating responses, um, that needs, in my mind, to become a mainstay in our communities. Um, and that that can actually be a source of inspiration because there is nothing left to lose. We're at the 11th hour um, in, in many systems, um, but within our climate and we don't have breathing room to actually not get a job done. And there's a lot of rollbacks we do have to engage in even to take the steps forward we need to based on what the, the past administrations have done. Um, 
so I think that's actually a really powerful place. Um, I have found nothing more inspiring than the coalitions that I've been privy to, um, and I've missed it. And COVID is challenging us, I think, even more with what feels like immense separation. Um, that's why Seth and Carl jumped on in the beginning to have these, you know, to keep our communities, you know, inner interfacing and building. I think there is a there is a question from somebody who threw out, oh, somebody oh replying to Amy Green New Deal. When's the next farm bill coming up? Was what Amy Amy Lemmer is asking. I'm I'm at actually at her house right now, generously letting me use her office, husband's office. Um, but it, along with that, Renata, if you could, I know we didn't mention Sherry Pingree's, you know, the, the what is it, the uh, Agricultural Regenerative Agricultural Act or something like that? Agricultural Resiliency Act. Resiliency. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Okay, so yeah, maybe if we could touch on those really quickly, I know we have to wrap up. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so the try to wrap all, all these things together. So we have um, a, a task force that Biden's put together with a bunch of recommendations, some of which include agriculture. There, there are a lot of echoes there with um, the House, House Select Committee report that um, Aurora mentioned on climate, the climate crisis. There's a big section on agriculture in there that's very detailed. And then there's this bill that was introduced back in February by a representative Pingree out of Maine echoing that report that this was not an accident this is you know a lot of smart people working together to lay the groundwork for um mm -hmm. 2023 farm bill is the next date supposedly maybe earlier um 2023 but that means starting to work on it now or very soon because it takes a couple years to get that bill passed and then the um there's you know definitely um, folks teeing up a comprehensive climate bill at the federal level, which would include some agriculture chapter, an agricultural chapter, and, and Pingree's bill is um, positioned to influence that conversation. So there will be a lot to engage on, providing there's um, a new president and, you know, maybe a new Senate that, that gives a lot of opening for making some progress on this. This is great. It would seem like we would absolutely need Democrats in the Senate in order to move that as well. Um, I want to make sure to mention the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition as a resource for this federal work. Um, I cannot recommend them highly enough. Get on their mailing list and follow their blog if you are interested in the really quickly changing federal dynamics. They're, they do a good job of tracking it. National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition. Yeah, NSAC for short. Mm -hmm. Very wonky, so you have to be able to hang with that, but um, they really follow the details and they have a, they're a coalition, so they've got over 100 125 organizations around the country that work not just on agriculture, on sustainable ag, but also on food justice, food access, nutrition. Um, they're, they're really a, a full, they're, they're a farm bill type, you know, organization. They're built to, to influence the farm bill. It's fantastic to hear. It's uh, in my mind, nothing less than the holistic view we, we have to take and what I hear expressed from you all. So thank you so much, Renata. I think uh, anything left, we maybe will We'll, we'll ping in the, in the comments as they come and maybe I'll reach out and be in touch. I think we're all connected now on Facebook potentially. So um, yeah, we'll see what, what the community brings. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for sharing all the resources and, and all of the new ways to kind of frame and, and remove illusory notions of what needs to be done because it can be a wonderful thing. We do need our coalitions and we need to be strong in it and our resilience. So thank you for the inspiration today. Really. I hope it was more inspiring than than depressing. <laughs> and that, I think there's nothing more empowering than being than seeing what it is and being like, yeah. okay, we got a job to do. <laughs> Pull back the curtain from the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's refreshing stuff. <laughs> and watch, watch comedy. What watch Noah uh, Trevor Noah. <laughs> oh, man, lots and lots of comedy. It is, it is a yeah. comedy. Yeah. Um, All right. Thanks also for our contributions. Okay, beautiful. Thank you so much, Renata. We'll be in touch. Bye. Bye-bye.